Oh, very suave, hey, my friend. <laughs> Larry's put a new shirt on since I spoke to him last, and he looks good. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, one and all. You know, it's stormy out there tonight. There's a thunderstorm in the area, and it's just about upon us. The winds are blowing, the trees are bending, and the sky is dark and ominous. It's a great night, folks, to settle in your most comfy chair. Kick your feet back, relax. You've worked hard all week, and you deserve this time for yourselves. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of choice. Tonight, Larry Hancock returns for part two of his new book, Unidentified, the NSI Problem of UFOs. You can find part one, as always, at our website, www.nightfrightshow.com, or simply Google Larry Hancock, Night Fright Show, UFO, and uh, it'll be the first video that pops up in the Google search. So once again, Larry Hancock, Night Fright Show, UFO, and it'll be right there for you. Okay, folks, let me tell you a little bit about Larry. Larry Hancock is considered amongst the top tier of JFK assassination researchers. His groundbreaking book, Someone Would Have Talked, is a staple on the shelves of anyone who is interested in authentic research on the Kennedy assassination. Let me repeat that. Authentic research on the Kennedy assassination, not speculation. Okay, that's the difference between Larry and a lot of the rest of the researchers, authentic research. Larry's book, co-written with Stuart Wexler, titled The Awful Grace of God, is the go-to book for research on the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. assassination. Now, Larry describes himself, and I quote, folks, I'm a conservative guy, I'm a national skeptic, I'm probably the most conservative, quote-unquote, conspiracy nut you're ever going to run into. I'm very hard to please. You will see a lot, and he, he's still married after all these years, by the way, after saying that, you, and he nods his head. You will see a lot of things that UFO folks write about and talk about are not in this book. This book has been so tightly focused on military intelligence, military and security observations had I not been able to focus my research like this, I probably would not have been able to see what I saw. There's a ton of data that supports this view. Okay, so folks, given that what I've just told you, I tepidly, last time Larry was on, this is his first UFO book, by the way, very tepidly and kind of supposing the answer, it wasn't the answer I ended up getting, but I asked Larry, I said, are we being visited by extraterrestrials? Now, Larry's answer, folks, absolutely rattled me, and it still does. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking of it. He said, and I quote, Brent, someone is not just visiting us, but someone has some very special interest in us I can't tell you if they are ETs, interdimensional, or time travelers. Somebody is here that's different. Yeah, that's where we're going to go tonight, folks. We're going to pick up where we left off. Now, this story goes back to the end of World War II. What you see later going on at the SAC bases is simply continuity of what's been going on for decades. Whoever or whatever is displaying this interest is totally focused. Are you ready for this? This is terrifying. 
on the American Atomic Warfare Complex. Larry, welcome back to the show. And I should tell folks, Larry has the distinction now as being the most frequent guest on this show. And no, I don't pay him. And no, he doesn't pay me. <laughs> I think Larry's been on, I think it's nine times now, Larry, over the years. Thank you for that, by the way. It's a great honor, as always, to be able to have Larry on because, as I said before, Larry is the real deal. Larry, before we start, we lost a true friend this week. Jim Mars passed away, folks. His book, Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, was... Res Last time you were on, we, we talked about Sherry. Isn't that funny, eh? No more, okay? No more. Was responsible for Oliver Stone's cinematic masterpiece, masterpiece film, JFK. Larry, could you say a few words about Jim? Uh, Jim is a great guy. I love Jim. One of the things that I loved about Jim is... Jim never said that he was anything more or less than a reporter. And he reported what was put in front of them. He wrote extremely well. He wrote in a very entertaining fashion. And he was never combative. And that distinguished him from many, many people in the JFK and other communities because he literally didn't get into arguments. And reporters don't. He just presented the stories that he came across. And that that made him a really nice guy and probably nicer than a lot of the rest of us. Yeah, I agree. I have a wonderful, I've been thinking about this, what to tell you folks about Jim Mars. And the only thing I can tell you, because he's so nice and there's so many stories to tell, but he was coming on this show. And before the show um, was about to air, I said, Jim, I said, I got to run upstairs. I'm going to get a cup of coffee and bring it back down to the studio. He said, no worries, Brent. And he held up his coffee cup and he pointed to it and he said, I've already got a cup of coffee, except mine's got a head on it. That's Jim Mars, folks. Down to earth, just relaxed, and he'll tell you what he knows. And that's it. There's no ultimate professional. Knows his dates, knows his facts inside out. And he's going to be more than sadly missed, folks. Jim is irreplaceable. Rest in peace, Jim. God bless, my friend. Okay, Larry, let's get to your book. I thought maybe we could start off unidentified the NSI problem of UFOs. By the way, folks, just go to www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover, and you can order it from the comfort of your own home. I think I just heard thunder outside. It's almost here. 1952, Larry, Washington sightings, or as it was called, the invasion of Washington. Can you walk us through that? Uh, absolutely, I can. But just to set the context for that, and I think it's an important context, Washington drew all the attention. It drew the press attention. It drew media headlines across the country because on multiple nights that summer, um, FAA, well, radar tracked UFOs over the city and they were reported to the Air Force, and I'll get back to that in a minute, but one of the things that wasn't covered and certainly was not shared with the media at that point in time was that down up and down the northeastern seaboard, one of the strategic, most strategic areas of the nation, the most populous, the most industrialized, from Boston through New York City to Philadelphia, down through Washington, there was an intense wave of UFO reports being generated to the Air Defense Command, not through the public necessarily, but actually from Air Defense Command radars, and there were almost continual attempts to intercept UFOs during probably a four-week period. 
Washington was just part of that. But I will say that for everything that was happening over Washington at night, in day and nighttime, it was happening up and down the seacoast and could only be construed as something like a reconnaissance in force. Uh, in the book, I detail a whole series of attempted and frustrating intercepts of pilots actually being vectored into UFOs that they were unable to engage. So we always talk about Washington, D.C., and the books focus on Washington, D.C., but quite frankly, Washington, D.C. may well have been a diversion from actually what was going on from a military perspective. Okay, so we're in the middle of the Cold War, don't forget, folks, the Cold War, ultimate chill here. All of a sudden, you've got these UFO sightings over Washington. Now, think what would that be like today in a post-9-11 world. You've got these unidentified objects floating over Washington. God knows who's in control of them. God knows their intent. What did the military do? I mean, things must have just went, forgive the pun, ballistic in, in the pandemic. You would, you would have thought so, but here, here are some very strange things about it. First of all, and, and this, if you want to talk about frightening at that point in the Cold War, the Air Force response was so tardy that when these reports were generated from commercial civilian air traffic control, the jets routinely arrived on station over Washington anywhere from one hour to two hours late. Think about that for a moment. This is, this is the nation's capital, and the Air Force gets a report from, of unidentified objects, and it can't even get a single jet interceptor there for an hour. Now, just think of what the Russians thought when they were reading those headlines. Like, wow, these guys don't have an air defense. Uh, and, and that was true. That was an amazing thing. And, and that's a, a sub-note in the, in the newspaper articles at the time. They're, they are very damning to the air defense of the nation. What we don't know, and again, what is not written about at the time, is all of the, the reports that we get are coming from commercial air traffic controllers. However, as you can imagine, there were well-manned, staffed, and equipped Air Defense Command radar sites that covered Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C., and that area, and we have no idea what they were seeing. In fact, the Air Force said that it was generating no reports itself. It was only responding to reports from the air traffic controllers. Now, that's really strange. Uh, they don't, either they didn't even take the trouble to ask Air Defense Command what it was actually painting, but you would think that if they had and it was showing nothing, they would have had a very strong rebuttal. Oh, yes, our guys are in charge, we're scanning the skies, we saw nothing, must have been problems with the local radar. But they don't even say that. So we don't, what we know is that the Air Defense response was pitiful. We don't know what the Air Defense Command was seeing. And when those Air Force interceptors did arrive over the city, they were put in charge of the tower controllers, not air defense controllers, not air defense controllers with height finder radar. Uh, these are commercial tower operators. And, and Brent, you made a reference to 9-11. That's very much what happened in 9-11. 
the nation's air defense command was handed over to air traffic controllers who had no idea of how to vector or control fighters. And, and that's amazing. Um, so Washington, D.C. was, if you look at it in detail from the military perspective, was even more frightening than one might imagine. It's funny, you know, I just want to mention about 9-11. I remember getting a frantic phone call from a very close friend at the time. You've got to turn on your TV. She was hysterical. And she said, the United States has been attacked. And I thought right away, how did the Russians get through? Was it the same thing, the same basic premise that the exterior, the borders, if you will, the, um, uh, the exterior part of the United States, North America, is protected, and you kind of give up the airspace internally to whatever goes on? Was it the same type of deal? The other question I wanted to ask you, too, I'm going to give you two, and then I'll shut up. Where was the president during this, in the 1952 sightings? Okay. Let me take the second one first, because that is easier. Uh, the president was there. The president was in Washington. The president did call the Air Force, actually had his aide call the Air Force to try to get a situation update. And we know from the head of the Air Force UFO Project, Blue Book, at the time, they had nothing for him. And that annoyed Eisenhower so badly that, Within days, he convened a special and secret meeting, and all we know about that meeting is the name of the meeting title, and it was Defense of the Capitol. And one can bet that Eisenhower was not happy, and there were some things that grew out of that meeting, including a referral of the whole subject to the CIA, which turned into something really special. But uh, so the Eisenhower was there. He was aware of what was going on. He was not at all happy. But unlike today, nobody knew his response. Today, we would know instantaneously uh, and it would be stupid. But that's another story. Second question. Um, no, the the situation in 1952 was not at all similar. Uh, by 1952, the nation was beginning to put together a very structured air defense in depth, not only on the east and west coast, but across the northern border, the northern tiers. They were setting up strings of radar sites across Canada. Uh, these into the Arctic, they would not be finished for a time, but it was, as you said earlier, it was Early in the height of the Cold War, uh, we had radar sites, we had interceptors on alert. Uh, in 9-11, during 9-11, that had all gone by the wayside. And those, be because of the essentially the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States on 9-11 had no more than four ready alert squadrons in the United States with a total of somewhere between 12 and 15 aircraft to cover the entire nation. Not only that, it had taken all down all its, almost all its active radar sites and, respect, and linked in to the FAA to do radar tracking off transponders. And, of course, as soon as the terrorists turned off the transponders, it was a nightmare because literally... Uh, no one could locate 
those planes among the immense amount of traffic going up and down the East Coast. Uh, eventually, they did locate them, but only with passive radar, I mean, with active radars from a cr approach control radar at local airports. So, no, not, not at all the same. In 1952, we had a very active air defense, and it literally failed. And in 2001, we had no air defense, and the pilots that were available responded tremendously well, but it, it just wasn't there. They were too far away. Was there a parallel event that may have taken place over Moscow? Because this sounds like a military intrusion. It sounds like there's probing going on. Now, I, I don't know if that could be accurate or not. There are, all, there are reports out of Russia that give us very similar probing of missile sites, pr probing of military sites. Not anything equivalent as far as Moscow itself. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the things that actually puzzled American intelligence during the early years of the war through 1952 was that there were very few UFO reports, virtually no UFO reports that made it into collections, intelligence collections from Russia. At that point in time, either they were not seen anything at all or they were being so effectively suppressed that we, we don't see them. And we, and we still don't. Uh, sources out of Russia for that sort of thing later are there. But in those early days, no. The only UFOs they were seeing at that point in time were the stratospheric balloon launches that we began to fly across the Soviet Union for reconnaissance purposes. And they very quickly identified those as our balloons. <laughs> so they weren't UFOs other than for the first few hours until they figured out what was going on. When this happened over the skies of Washington, it happened over three or four, there was three or four different sightings, if I'm not mistaken. Was it the same response each time, or were, did we kind of get better at responding? Like, here they are again, we better not make it an hour and a half this time before we engage them. The other question, I'm going to give you two questions again. Um, did anybody ever take a shot at them? Okay, interestingly enough, it got better only to the extent of, in the first occurrences, you had to wait two hours plus. In the later occurrences, it was down to an hour. Now, obviously, neither is going to be of much value in an actual strategic Russian strike on the capital. So it's hard to say that they really approved. Uh, in the other instances, Air Defense Command is still absent from the game. There's no sign of them. You still have con tower controllers controlling. I mean, you would think that after the first instances, from then on, Air Defense Command would be totally devoted and in the game, and the Air Force would be talking about how much, or how much Air Defense Command was on the ball. But even in those later statements, it's like, nope, they don't even show up. So it's hard to say that they got better. Uh, one thing that did happen is the sightings actually got more con concrete. They got more more structured. In one incident, you actually had a pilot report that he was surrounded by UFOs at the same time that uh, radar was showing multiple UFOs around his plane. And at that point in time, 
everybody assumed that we were about ready to lose an aircraft, and they all took off. And that was that. He did not get attacked. How did he describe the craft? Did he? Is there any record of that, of his description of the just, craft? Just the lights. Just lights, just because lights. these were all nighttime sightings. I and see. as okay. you'll see in the book, the nighttime sightings are almost all... They provide so little information that it's, other than something unknown going on, you get very little information from most of them. But in this case, the important thing was the pilot was seeing something apparently very close to the aircraft. At the same time, radar, multiple radars were tracking something very close to his aircraft. As far as shooting down, uh, that is very interesting. Officially, we have no reports of any actual engagement, of any actual weapons being fired. However, in a completely separate trail of information, we have some material turned over to a laboratory later, which reportedly came from a UFO that was fired on during one of the Washington incidents. Uh, very strange lead. I write about it in the book. Um, apparently, it was it was turned over uh, the Air Force. It was turned over by the Navy. Uh, this is strange. Um, and and again, by the way, I should point out. This is happening over the Capitol. It's happening within the airspace of a lot of Navy ships, a lot of Navy bases who have their own radar, their own fighter cover. We hear nothing from them. Uh, so we really don't know what they might have been seeing or responding to. But we have, we have no official record of any engagement or a, attempt to shoot them down. This is new to me. I didn't know that they'd recovered some kind of, uh, I'm going to say, debris from uh, an attacked um, aircraft or, or UFO. I, this is brand new to me, and the fact that the Navy would turn it over and not, well, I guess it would fall maybe in a Navy yard. I'm just speculating. Now, the other thing I'm very curious about at the same time, um, was Curtis LeMay around at that point? Was he in charge of SAC? Was there even a SAC at that point? Uh, yes, Curtis LeMay would still have been in charge of SAC at that point in time, yes. Would he not have got in a lot of trouble because of the bad response time of the air defenses over Washington? Would that come under his command? No, that that would be a completely air defense command, completely separate. And, and again, somewhat, you know, we only have bits and pieces of paper trails. And as you said earlier, I'm a very conservative conspiracy nut. Um, one would think, and it's almost impossible to picture the fact that air defense commanders were not disciplined over that sort of intrusion. Uh, if, if nothing else, because they didn't come up with information saying that these are false indications. You know, our people are trying, we, we did not see this. Those must have been false radar returns or our people who are much more experienced and professional verified that these were false radar returns from temperature inversions early on, so we didn't re They came back with nothing. And coming back with nothing in the military is not usually acceptable. One of the questions I have for you as well is, this goes on over and over and over and over again. How did the press deal with this? I mean, this sounds like the Kennedy assassination cover-up all over again, where you've got 
always um, documents perhaps on Oswald, perhaps on what the Secret Service was doing, etc., etc. And all of a sudden, they all just conveniently disappear. That did not happen with this subject. The press was all over it. They were all over it continually. They gave the Air Force no peace about it. Um, I write about that extensively in the book to the extent that the press was a problem for the Air Force. In fact, a lot of what we see in the internal communications have, has to do with what kind of statements that you're going to give to the press when you have no answers. I think what actually became standard, the standard response early on was the Secretary of Defense asked for a formal statement. I mean, this is a big deal. I, okay, Air Force, tell me what to say. This worked its way all the way down to the UFO project at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And the response was, well, we don't have an answer yet. We're working on it. We suggest that you only talk about the UFOs that we've identified and simply don't talk about the others. And believe it or not, that became the de facto policy. Never official, but the de facto policy. So they would, would continually talk about how many they'd identified and what caused the misidentifications and misunderstandings. And literally, the, the rest were simply classified as unknown and filed as unknown, and that was that. And a very interesting, they came up with very interesting ways to handle press inquiries and route them to different locations to delay the whole process so that by the time it actually got an answer, which may not have been satisfactory, it was all news. Well, when it's all news, it doesn't get written about. So they, they had delaying tactics at a minimum, but no, the, the press never gave it up, uh, certainly through the 1950s into the 1960s. They were on it all the time, and that was a major problem for the Air Force. It's too bad we didn't have that type of aggressive journalism with the Kennedy assassination. It seems to be the exact opposite. The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brendan Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now, nightfrightshow.com. I want to jump ahead now to the 1980s and what took place along the Hudson Valley because I just want to show the folks that this is a repeating pattern. This doesn't just all happen in the 50s and circling around 1947 and Roswell. This is going on still today, right up to present time. So I'd like to deal with the 1980s and the Hudson Valley sightings. Uh, sure, and I, and I think this, this is a good point, and it, that highlights the transition. I I'll have to say, just again, to set the context, throughout the 1970s, we had perhaps the most intense series of military intrusions that sack air bases, missile facilities. And, and when I talk about intrusions, I'm not just talking about a UFO sighted overhead at 20,000 feet passing by. I'm talking about something that enters the base about 10 feet over the security gates, goes and hovers in the atomic weapons storage dump and stays there, or something that penetrates the security gates around an IBM launch silo, and when daylight comes, you find that the locks have been removed. Um, 
That happened in the 1970s. In the 19 early 80s, early 80s, especially 1983-84, it was a very tense time. Most people don't realize it was a point in time where Russia seriously considered an atomic first strike on the United States. Uh, very critical time from a military standpoint. The U.S. had no idea that it was pushing the Russians to that extent. And because of the crisis nature, you might have expected to see another set of really definite penetrations, intrusions, and you don't. What you see suddenly is nothing more happens at the SAC bases, the missile sites, the atomic plants. What you see is right north of New York City, 50 miles, 60 miles up the Hudson River Valley, uh, through an area about 150 miles wide, 100 miles long, you see this intense series of entirely passive non-military sightings. These large structured craft, uh, mostly at nighttime, twilight, some in the daytime, just start cruising around at low altitudes and flashing all sorts of lights. And thousands of people see them. I mean, these things fly over turnpikes at dusk during high traffic periods. And they look like, some of the descriptions are, this looks like a, a flying bridge. It's got girders. It doesn't look like any kind of a normal craft, and it's got lights all over it. It would be impossible for it to be more visible and more overt. And when it's reported to the military, the Air Force says, oh, we no longer collect those reports. Um, we stopped that back in the 60s when we closed down our UFO project. So we're just not interested. And they go to the FAA and the FAA says, well, we don't collect those reports either. And, and nobody in government even wants to hear it. And it goes on for a year and it goes on for two years and it diminishes in number, but it continues to go on and it's like nobody cares. I just want to interrupt you for a second. I want this to be crystal clear to the folks. Folks, you've got American airspace being invaded by something that's not identified that could potentially be a threat to the security of the United States. And everybody is washing their hands of it. They don't even want to take the report to investigate. This makes no sense to me whatsoever. How do, you, how do we explain that? Well, there's, <laughs> and Brent, I think you've seen it. I, as you know, I've, I've been on many times and talked about many subjects. Sometimes, and this is a peer, of what appears to happen, the Air Force got into a place where it had no answers. All of these standard conventional intelligence uh, methods failed it. It literally tried, and it tried very hard, but it, it could not resolve what these things were. And it also had to face the fact, and, and this goes all the way back to the mid-1950s, Starting in 1952 through 1953-1954, Air Defense Command radar starts generating tracks of objects that are moving 5,000 miles per hour 
10,000 miles per hour, uh, sometimes tracked by multiple radar sites. And it's at this point in time that America is building its next generation of air defense called SAGE, semi-automatic ground. It's a great acronym. And it's investing more than it cost us to build the A-bomb during World War II in an integrated set of radar networks, anti-aircraft missiles, a new generation of interceptors, all armed with atomic warheads. But quite frankly, in this same period of time, our interceptors can't engage any of these UFOs. So the Air Force obviously is in a difficult situation. Do we acknowledge that these things exist and even our best plans for a defense system are going to fail? Or do we tell everybody we're building something for Russian bombers and it'll work fine and we ignore these things? Guess which they did. Yeah, they just ignored it completely. Yeah. Are we still connected? Yeah, are you st can you hear me? <laughs> you got it. That, that's, that pause is exactly what happened. They, they, and that, that continued. I guess the point is, literally, when all of their methods, methodology failed, because they kept, one of, the, one of the problems is they treated it as an air defense threat. And a more extensive answer to your question, it, it's not quite as simple as they just ignored it. I, I mean, they, they couldn't deal with it. They didn't offer an explanation, and certainly they didn't want to create any more panic. I mean, expecting the Russians to attack us with nuclear weapons at any moment was serious enough. You know, you really don't need to add anything to this game to scare people. But the other thing that comes into play is, in terms of military response, if you can't verify a threat, and in this case, they couldn't. These were unknown objects. Yes, they were violating our airspace. There was never any confirmed indication of an attack. There was never, you know, they're there, but they're not threatening. While on the other hand, we expect the Russians to launch nuclear strikes preemptively at any moment. Where, where are you going to put your resources? Where are you going to put your attention? Here's a known threat. Here's something that you can't even classify. You're going to put your attention on the known threat. Now, that, there's nothing wrong with that logic. So in terms of threat analysis, that made perfect sense. Just file them. Maybe at some point in time, we'll figure out what they are. But we have, we have verified that they're not Russian. So for the first few years when we thought they were Russian or might be Russian, we devoted a huge amount of resource to it. Now we know that they're not. We're going to worry about those Russian bombers and then those Russian missiles, and we're just going to start filing this stuff. I never thought I'd pose this question to you ever, but you freaked me out last time you were on enough, so what the hell, I'll go for it. <laughs> Is there any chance they didn't react because they knew, they knew full well what they were up against and perhaps there has been contact? I don't see any sign of that simply because there is a clear pattern of frustration that goes on and on and on. In fact, it becomes so bad that in their internal memos and documents, they start obfuscating it even internally. The field intelligence will go berserk over a certain series of incidents and try to get headquarters' attention. And headquarters will go, 
uh, essentially put it into this process, leaving the field unsatisfied and concerned. But headquarters essentially shunts it aside. Then if you look at the memos that are ongoing at headquarters, you see they're still concerned. They just they had to tell the field something, but they're still internally concerned. It's not like somebody somewhere knows what's going on. There's just no sign of that. Uh, and they, con they continue to find reports, so they continue to deal with the subject. Uh, so from that perspective, no, I don't see there's, there's no sign that they ever dropped it internally. They just tried to move it down as less of a concern for the public. Is that, okay. it's, I don't know if that's enough of an answer, but I, I don't, I, I wouldn't see the memos that I see and the documents that I see, especially when we get into the 60s and the 70s, are so strange. You, I mean, you have national security alerts that are generated. You get alerts that go to NORAD. You get alerts that go to the National Command Center in Washington, D.C. It's not that they stop responding to the incidents. They don't. It's just that once an, since once an incident passes and there was no actual attack and no actual threat, then it just goes away. They never, ever can. It's always responded to as a because it is an air defense issue. If they knew what these things were, I think it would be very different. We, we can track how they respond to other threats, even that they cover up, like Soviet threats, uh, anti-satellite satellites, things like that. And you can see that they, they know what's going on. You can't see that here. Larry Hancock is our guest tonight. None better, folks. Unidentified is the name of the book, The NSA Problem of UFOs. And it sounds like it's not only the NSI's problem, it's ours as well, folks. Um, Larry, I want to jump Brent, back. One, one thing. Yeah. Can I insert one thing? And, and this, this gets to the heart of the matter. We, we shouldn't leave Washington, D.C. We, we, we left Washington, D.C. with President Eisenhower unhappy. He handed the problem off to the CIA because the Air Force was not giving him the answers he wanted. And this is something that I were able to go, just relatively new because some great research that other people have done. And by the way, I should say most of this primary research that I'm taking, writing about, analyzing was not done by me. There's been some immense work done by researchers in this field, and I, I cited it all or tried to. Um, he called the CIA in. The CIA took a look at it and said, basically, what the Air Force is doing is fine as far as what they're doing. They're looking at it on an incident-by-incident incident basis. But there's a bigger story here than that. You're not going to see the big picture, the real picture, the real threat, looking at it incident by incident, because when you can't identify it, you just file it. That solves nothing. So the CIA offered the opinion that the Air Force approach wasn't going to work. As a matter of fact, once they got a closer look at the problem, by that fall, you have a report from the deputy director of the Office of Scientific Intelligence, the CIA, saying, we've looked at this, and this is a problem of national security. This we are seeing patterns of incidents over American atomic bases in the Southwest, 
over American production facilities, unknown and unconventional objects. In other words, these cannot be aircraft. There's something unconventional technology is focused on our atomic warfare complex. We need to take this to the National Security Council. This needs to be a national intelligence priority. We need to devote our higher level intelligence staffs to this, to do patterns analysis, to do warnings, to send it over to the strategic warnings people. Take it away from the Air Force. We need to look at it in a different way. And that's in regard to your question you asked me a minute ago, this would not happen if somebody knew what these were. Uh, clearly, they didn't, and clearly, they were seeing something that they were filtering. Now, the strange thing is, and I detail this in my book because we now have the documents, and it, it's kind of pitiful, but it appears that this whole thing ended up in a power struggle between the CIA and the Air Force, and the proposed investigation died in a Washington, D.C. turf battle. That is so typical of security agencies, isn't it? Military intelligence, CIA, FBI. This is what caused 9-11. Nobody was talking to each other. It's my information, and the people suffer because of it. 1962, Cuban Missile Crisis, the closest we've ever come, to my knowledge, of not being here. Was there, you know, we know we've established pr pretty much in your book and other people as well that the reason why they showed up in the first place, UFOs, extraterrestrials, if you will, is to keep an eye on us because all of a sudden the kids have the matches. Of course, I'm talking about the atomic bombs, nuclear weapons. Closest we've ever come to a nuclear exchange, October 1962. Was there a rash of sightings or alerts going off in those days that cannot be explained? No. The answer to that is no. And, and you might be surprised about that. Uh, there were some very frightening things going on. You mentioned General LeMay, right? During the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, at the height, the very height of it, um, General LeMay let missile launches go forward. And we SAC launched ICBMs and into the Pacific Ocean, you know, targeting, they could have targeted, right? There were several very frightening things that happened that could have escalated the situation into open war. But it was us that were doing stupid things. There's no wave of UFO sightings. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a dip in UFO sightings. UFO sightings. Uh, we start seeing another wave of them in 64 and 65. There are a few during the early 60s, but all of those appear to be probes of the ICM bases, ICBM bases that were under construction in the U.S. Uh, individual probes, one-off events. And, and I, I have to insert the fact that, that what we see in the overall pattern here is that UFOs, have their own agenda, or the unknowns that I'm talking about. Let's, let's qualify that. The, the unknowns that are focused on the military complex have a very clear agenda. First, they were focused on atomic design facilities, weapons design facilities, and weapons assembly facilities in New Mexico. Then they focused on the huge, tremendous ramp up in atomic materials production which took us from five bombs 
to 10,000 bombs. And I'm talking about strategic weapons, especially fusion weapons. Then, once we built all of those, they showed no interest at all in the assembly plants, the materials production plants, and they focused their attention strictly on the strategic weapons deployments. Where were those weapons? What SAC bases were they on? Where were they deployed on ICBMs? The pattern that emerges is, at the end, is a focus on where the weapons are and an ability to identify them and very likely deal with those weapons in place. It's terrifying to think that they could just come and go as they want, play with nuclear weapons, turn them on, turn them off. We know about that with Maelstrom in the 60s, 67, I think it was. This scares me because these are nuclear weapons. You know, all of a sudden there's one shooting across the sky. It's not like you, it's going to make for a very bad day, Larry. <laughs> Brent, I, I'm not so sure that the, the concept of someone being able to turn off fusion bombs bothers me that much. Um, you know, they may have our best interest at heart. It could go either way. Either they want to be prepared to disarm us for good or for bad uh, at some point in time. Maybe they just want to know the extent of our capabilities. Certainly, they it would also be able to monitor our disarmament. But so it is it's a very sensitive point. I don't know which, you know, all I can do is kind of like Jim, I, I can report on what they seem to have been doing as to their motive. Well, obviously they haven't done anything to us yet. As a matter of fact, it, it seems to have gone the other way. And by the way, I should mention, think about what we're talking about. There is not the slightest sign that they ever tried to do any of this covertly. In the early days, almost all of the sightings were during daytime. They were very visible. They would fly at medium altitudes, low altitudes. I mean, there was no attempt to disguise themselves. Now, I and, and I'll give you an analogy to that in, in a moment, but it's not it's not that they were covert. It's not that they were sneaky. It was there for everybody to see exactly what was going on as clearly as with the Hudson River Valley. If anything, I'm, I'm forced to wonder if they're so perplexed about our level of denial that they don't know what to do about us. I drove on that highway coming back to Quebec from Ted Sorensen's memorial. I was in New York City, and that's the way I came back to Montreal. All I have to say is it's creepy, folks. <laughs> it's creepy. There's no lights anywhere. It is two-lane split highway, and it's very, very well-maintained. But, man, when you're in the middle of the night, there's nobody around. Um, those stars are right there in your face, and you're constantly looking ahead, and you can see, of course the stars just ahead of you and you're you know you're gazing at the, the sky wondering if there's something going to show up. Larry, I have to ask you this because we're running out of time. What led you to come to the conclusion that shocked me to my core that there's something besides military probes going on and there is something extraterrestrial visiting us? It is the pattern analysis. That's what I did differently. What the CIA was not allowed to do Nobody in government ever looked at for patterns in this. Well, I shouldn't say that. The Air Force did. You, you'll find early Air Force reports where they clearly see patterns. Same for the CIA. But nobody ever officially carried that forward and looked for patterns over a 
the full time period of some 30 plus years. That's what led me to be because the patterns are so clear. And and it's not just ways of sightings. That's not important. It's where the intrusions are. The fact that you see evidence of sampling. Uh, you compare these incidents with the overall ways of UFO reports. They don't jibe. The, the, so it's the patterns that, that make it very clear long term that something's not. No one individual incident stands by itself. And that's what doom the Air Force approach. The patterns are just crystal clear. And I, I, I would challenge anyone to read the book, look at the pattern analysis towards the end of the book, and I'd, I'd love to talk about it because they just, it appears to be extremely solid to me. Unidentified, the NSI problem of UFOs. Our guest and its author, Larry Hancock, the best folks, bar none www.nightfrightshow. Click on tonight's guest book cover. You can order it from the comfort of your own home, and the rain has, has hit, and I think that's what's been causing a little bit of the dropouts with the uh, the Skype access through the studio tonight. Larry, you know, you shocked me with a question last time. I've got to go here now with this one as well. Have you ever been abducted? Not that I can remember. Okay. A little humor there. Yeah, I got it. I got it. A little abduction okay. humor, okay. You know, I was uh, no, don't think asking so. you that one. Um, what do you think about abductees? Because <laughs> I've had many on the show, and they seem very authentic, extremely authentic, and several of them have the same types of stories. Is your research perhaps going to lead you in that direction, your future research? I, I believe that they're very sincere. However, there's also been some very good counter-research done on on psychological triggers, that sort of thing. I certainly would not deny that there, there could have been contacts or abductions, but I will offer you this from the perspective that I'm writing about, and there's a, a whole other area that we haven't discussed, which is called disinformation and diversion. From a military's perspective, some of that may well be occurring not because of any other motive than to create false leads and to divert attention. Um, very, very basic military psychological warfare practice. So I don't, I don't think it's extremely pre prevalent, but I couldn't, I couldn't write it off. I can't, again, you know, not, not my focus, and I guess I would on, honestly say there are some other areas that I would like to explore that within this area of focus that would, I'll leave that sort of thing um, as well as the diversions. And by the way, there definitely have been, this subject has been used by the military, especially by counterintelligence, very effectively to conceal both Star Wars development projects and stealth weapons projects. Can you and tell us about a that? A lot of what I'm sure. Um, a lot of what you see in contemporary discussion, uh, majestic twelve documents, uh, grays, reptilians, underground bases, can all be traced back to counterintelligence work that was conducted against individuals, against UFO researchers, and against UFO research groups primarily APRO, of whom I was a member of in the early days, um, 
because it was feared from the very beginning, and you will see it in documents from the early 50s, that the Russians would use UFO groups to collect information on covert American technology development. I mean, because unconventional technology can be very interesting if it's a new weapon system, as much so as if it's an unknown object. And there was grave concern, especially during the Star Wars developed some research and work that was going on outside Albuquerque in the Sandia base area. Um, that was where it started. And there's a whole chain of events that started planting false information. I will show you two books that I would highly recommend. Garage Men by Mark Pilkerton and Project Beta by Greg Bishop that delve into this area in great detail. I could describe it. They did the research. They do it more thoroughly. And basically, an Air Force, OSI, and DARPA counterintelligence effort has contaminated and largely destroyed research over the last 25 years. Larry, do you think, just speculation, but do you think they're happy with us trying to get off the planet, or do you think they would like to try and contain us? <laughs> because we're destroying one planet, let's not let them spread and, and bring that template with them. You know, that that's one of the areas that I would like to look at, because there are a whole series of non-military incidents that I would like to look at as far as patterns are concerned that I didn't in this book. There's there's a lot more room for pattern analysis. Um, I think they're very concerned about our weapons, and they may be concerned about those weapons being used on the planet. I don't know that they're concerned about us getting off planet with them, because given their capabilities, if we even showed the slightest interest in doing anything they didn't like, their power systems, their technology, it, there's no way we could be a threat to them in any perspective. However, they may be concerned about what we could do to the planet. You know, X-Files, of course, I go back to that because, you know, that was the show to watch. They ran a series of shows that said that the aliens were basically our parents, our creators. Your opinion? Outside of my brief, I, I guess in military terms, it's outside my brief and above my, my pay grade. Um, as a cultural anthropologist, I'm very interested in that, but I don't know enough to comment on it yet. <laughs> you know, that's a good segue to next show. You know that, eh? <laughs> ah, yes. yes Thank indeed. you, Larry. My best to you and your wife. The music's playing. Unidentify the NSA problem of UFOs, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover. Thank you so much, Larry, as always. Terrific book, folks. I'm Brent Holland from The Brent Holland Show. See you all next time. Thanks again.